Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'll read chapter, uh, I'll read verse 29 and 30. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. As you know, we're working our way through this chapter, and I'm not breaking any speed records. I know that. But it's okay, right? Uh, We're working uh, through what has been called for a long time God's golden chain of salvation. There are five links in this chain that began in eternity past. They extend into time and then to eternity future. Uh, The five links are foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and then glorification. And again, the links of salvation that began in in eternity past, verse 29, foreknowledge and predestination. We've talked about those previously. Foreknowledge doesn't mean... Uh, foresight, foreknowledge means actually those whom God has previously chose uh, to set his love upon uh, with a distinguishing saving love. Uh, it's, uh, the foreknowledge is virtually synonymous with the doctrine of election. And predestination is very simply uh, God determines the destination before the journey begins. And the destination for those who are uh, loved by God, uh, those who've been called according to his purpose, verse 29 says, their destination is that we are to become conformed to the image of his son, right? Conformed to the image of God's son. So we're in the process, as we've sung tonight, we're in the process of being made to look more and more like Christ. So the doctrines of foreknowledge and uh, predestination aren't something terrifying. They're actually something that's very wonderful, really displays to us the mercy of God, his kindness, his uh, literally his amazing grace, his, his eternal love to sinners, uh, whom he has chosen to set free from sin's bondage in order that we might be made like his dear son, again, conformed to Christ's image. Now, the last time we were together, we looked at the third link, the one in the middle there in this unbreakable chain. It's calling, uh, verse 30. And uh, uh, whom he predestined, these he also called. Kaleo is the word. It just literally means to call, to call aloud, to invite by name, to summon someone uh, from one place to another, to summon a person to come to you. And again, it's God who's the author of this. It's God's doing. God the Father who's the one who's calling sinners uh, to Christ. And as I said last time, there's two kinds of call in the Bible, two kinds of call described in the Scripture. One is known as the general call or the external call. Sometimes you hear it as the uh, universal call or invitation. All persons, uh, a call goes out for all persons to repent of their sin, to uh, to repent, to turn to Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Uh, Jesus, Jesus gave this kind of a call. Matthew 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Uh, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Uh, John 7, verse 37, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Paul says this in Romans 10. He says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For... Whoever, right, whoever call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It's a general call, universal call uh, to the gospel. And again, it goes out to all men. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, uh, very simply, will be saved. Now, last time we looked at some of these verses, I think. We looked at maybe a few other 
uh, passages that talk about the uh, universal call, but we kind of landed on and focused a lot on Matthew 22, which is a parable uh, of the wedding feast of the Son. And, and we worked our way through that story, and we saw that the king had invited a lot of people to come to the blessings of a royal wedding uh, and the wedding feast of his son. Uh, but amazingly, uh, in the story, many were unwilling to come. Uh, they were, in fact, disloyal to the king. They openly refused the king's favor and uh, his blessing. They were preoccupied with themselves and their own affairs and, and refused to come to the king's place of blessing. And Jesus says, uh, that, as he tells the story, he says, this is the kingdom of heaven. He says, such is the kingdom of heaven. Again, God is the king, and he bids men to come into his presence to find favor. He, he begs them to come and find rest for their souls. He comes, begs them to come to the fountain of living water and drink deeply and to find forgiveness through the person of Christ. But sadly, most men refuse to come. They, they purposely reject the invitation. They forfeit the, the beauty and the grandeur and the honor of the divine blessing. Of, and, and, and instead, they just want their normal everyday lives. Right, just mundane, self-serving, everyday lives. The, the vast majority of people really have no concern for the honor of the king and, and no concern for the honor of the son. Someone said this a long time ago, um, probably a number of someones, but the sad truth about most people in the world is most people are stupidly indifferent to the matters of eternity. They just go on living their lives like there is no eternity. Most people go on living their lives like they're never going to fa- be faced with the issue of death. And when confronted with the matters of eternity or confronted with the truth, most men choose to reject the truth and to continue to believe the lies that they're holding on to. So most men reject the universal gracious call of God, the offer of the gospel. Many hear it, but few come. And those, as I said this morning, those who refuse to come will bear the responsibility by themselves or in themselves. Their rejection of God's mercy and grace through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll bear that responsibility for all eternity because they'll face God in judgment. Because when you reject grace, when you reject mercy, when you have the judgment of death hanging over you and the the judge says, here, I'm going to give you a pardon, and you say, no, thank you very much, then all that remains is judgment, right? All that remains is judgment. And that's what men will get who reject the call of the gospel. They'll, They'll receive the righteous judgment of a righteous God against their sin. Now, I told you last time there's a problem with the universal call. And it has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with the clarity of the call. The problem with the universal call of the gospel, uh, again, is not the message, but it's the nature of the recipients, uh, the nature of fallen men. Because left to ourselves, nobody's ever going to respond. No no one's going to respond. No one's going to ever come because our natures won't allow it. So a person might hear the the gospel call. They might even understand the words up to a certain point, but they're unable and unwilling to come. They're undesirable. Uh, they, they have no desire to listen or to come uh, in repentance and faith to Christ because of the, their nature, as they are as natural men, and their rebellion against God because of the hardness of their hearts. And we've talked about this numerous times throughout our years here, the doctrine of total inability or the doctrine of radical corruption, the doctrine of uh, total depravity, however you want to label it. Man, man in his nature, in his natural state, hates God, hates Christ, hates the truth. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness, right? Men hold down the truth, fight against it. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural man, the unbeliever, 
does not accept or receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. People who don't have the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit can't receive spiritual truth from God. They can't receive the truth from God's Spirit. So again, left to ourselves, no one's responding to the universal call of the gospel. We, in and of ourselves, don't have the ability. But as I said last time also, inability uh, doesn't remove responsibility. Inability just confirms God's assessment of men and their rebellion uh, against him. He says all have sinned, all fall short of his glory. He says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. All will become useless. So again, inability in no way alleviates or dismisses man's responsibility to repent and come to faith in Christ because God makes no man a sinner. Sinners are sinners by birth. Sinners are sinners because they're offspring of Adam, born sinners. And each one of them has individually and personally rebelled and sinned against the holy God. Therefore, mankind alone bears the responsibility for his sin. He's guilty of treason against the Most High God. Uh, All men, all of us, are are children of disobedience. All of us are just objects of God's wrath. Again, in our natural state, we hate God. We hate Christ. And so much so has uh, natural man hated God and hated Christ. And not only that, but they've hated God's messengers and they uh, those who brought the gospel of grace and throughout the years of history uh, of God's kindness towards men as he sent ambassadors uh, with an offer of uh, forgiveness uh, throughout history. Men have just killed those ambassadors, just murdered them. John 3 and 19 says, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. <clears throat> for everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That's what Christ says about man. Men love their sin. They hate God, and they refuse to humble themselves. So again, mankind bears the responsibility for his own condition, for his eternal position before a holy God. And all men who fail to heed, again, the judgment or the call to repentance and faith in Christ are going to face God's eternal judgment. So again, you have this first kind of call. It goes out. It's external. It's a general. It's a universal call. A call to all men that goes out to all men to repent of their sin, to come to Christ, to to receive mercy, to receive grace, forgiveness of sin rather than to face God in his wrath and judgment. There's a second kind of call, the Bible tells us, a second kind of call. It's called the effectual call. The effectual call or the effective call, it's uh, limited to those who are elect. Uh, It's an internal specific call that issues not only the invitation, but also provides the willingness or the ability to respond. And and the word is used uh, so often in the New Testament in such a descriptive word of uh, believers, uh, so much so that in the New Testament, believers are actually called the, the called, ecclesia, the called out ones. Uh, the noun uh, form of that verb it would be the, the church, right? That's who we are. We're the church. We're the ecclesia. We're the called out ones. We're the ones who've been divinely summoned into God's presence. So to be effectually called, it means that God himself has overcome our rebellion against him, and he's called us and drawn us to himself through Christ. And since in our natural condition we stand in utter rebellion against God and enmity against him, again, left to ourselves, God has to do that, right? He has to be the operative, uh, the one who is operative, and he is, uh, for men and women to come to saving faith. Again, if we're called effectually into salvation, it's because of him who called us, right? If we come to a knowledge of the truth, it's because of him who is calling us to himself. Again, just look at the text and note the words he and then look at the, note the word, the, the, the connecting phrase, he also. Verse 28 again. 
We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, right? He, those whom he set his love upon, he also predestined them. Where are they going? Well, they're going to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So he, God, is the one who's doing the work. He's the one who's doing the activity. The connecting phrase, he also, just shows us that each of these elements, each of these links in the salvation, uh, um, all the way back to eternity, all the way back to the author himself, it's God himself. Each link hooking itself to the previous one. So in eternity past, uh, God exercised his sovereignty. God exercised his divine foreknowledge, his predestination upon certain men whom he chose to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might bless them so they might praise him and worship him in Christ forever. In time, he called these whom he has chosen to saving faith that they might be justified and then ultimately glorified. Again, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, one of the overarching errors of modern evangelicalism is, it's a, is a, that it so often gives the impression that salvation is predicated upon man, that salvation is predicated upon a man's decision to, quote-unquote, accept Jesus. But that's really an error from a biblical viewpoint because no man is really a Christian because he first accepted Jesus. <clears throat> no, no man is a Christian because of what he decides. Men are Christians because of what God has decided about us. And men are Christians because of what God has decided about us before the foundation of the world. And we are only able to choose him because he first chose us. And he effectually calls us into salvation. So we who are the called of God are objects of God's sovereign grace. We who are the called of God are objects of his eternal plan that's worked out in time. These whom he predestined, he also called. And by the way, God's effectual call, God's sovereign call, his electing call of believers in salvation, again, is still just further proof that we are eternally secure in Christ. <clears throat> That's one of the issues that Paul's working through in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, the eternal security of the believer. And there's a lot of people who don't have eternal security because they don't understand at the most fundamental level, the most foundational level, the issue of salvation. They think they did something to, quote-unquote, accept Jesus. And if they did something to accept Jesus, and then they can do something to not accept Jesus. And some people kind of go back and forth like this theologically all their life, and, and they never have any peace because they don't understand the truth. And Paul's just laying the truth out. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't make any of this up, right? Does it say pretty much the same thing in your text? Is God the one who's doing the work? Is God who's done work in eternity past? God's who's doing work in, in, in time? And God who's the one who's doing work, promised that work to <clears throat> in, in the future all the way to glory? That's what God is doing. And you see this truth everywhere. Everywhere. Go back to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, next word, called, right? Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, just stop and think about Paul for a moment. When he was called, right? You remember that story, his story in Acts chapter 9. He was at the time Saul of Tarsus. 
a very religious Jew, but a hater of Christ, a hater of Christians. And when when God called Paul, or the call of God came upon his life, it was a sovereign, divine, gracious, irresistible summons. You might remember the story in uh, um, Acts chapter 9. It was actually the glory of Christ appeared to such an extent that it physically knocked Paul to the ground, right? Knocked him to the dirt on, on the road to Damascus. Paul had no choice but to come. No choice but to respond. Called an apostle. Look at verse 6. Among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ, right? The called out ones. Verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Right? And Suthan is our brother. Verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all whom in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So when you're called by God, that makes you separated, that makes you a saint. Romans chapter 9 says it also justifies you. Here it sanctifies you, is what Paul is saying. Drop down to verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's pretty cool, huh? Called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, verse 24, but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the, uh, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if you are part of the called, when you hear the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross, for you it's power, for you it's wisdom from God, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Look back up at verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Verse 23 again, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. Verse 24, to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it's this divine summon that makes you part of the called, uh, both Jews and Greeks, part of the ecclesia, part of the called out ones, part of the church. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, right? Consider your divine summons. Brethren, that there's not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble. But, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. 
So no one, by human wisdom or human power, has ever decided to be a part of the ecclesia, a part of the called-out ones. It's the work of God. It's completely based on the fact of whom God has chosen. Look at verse 30. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became just wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's by the calling of God that Jesus Christ becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's the one who chose you. He's the one who predestined you. Again, Romans 8.30, Whom he predestined, these he also called, and those whom he called, these he also justified, and these who he justified, he also glorified. That's what happens to those who are divinely called. Divinely called out of the world, divinely called into the fellowship of saints, divinely called to be communion or in communion with or in fellowship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> Paul says to these fellows, he says, Galatians 1, 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of God for a different gospel. Paul is amazed that the Galatians are being led astray by some false teachers. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So it was God in his kindness that called the Galatian believers to himself. And now they're wandering, wandering away from that grace. They're wandering away from grace, and they're chasing error, and they're chasing a different gospel. Again, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by grace, right, by the grace of Christ. And if you know the gospel of Galatians, which I think you're going to know very well here in a few months because you're going through it in Sunday school, uh, you'll realize that they're turning away the gospel of grace for a gospel of works uh, that doesn't save anybody. Drop down to verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from men, nor as I taught it, but I received it to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond uh, many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, but uh, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Verse 15, but... When he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He said, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Right? I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. So, again, God's called me from my womb, my, my mother's womb. He, he called me. By his grace, he called me out of this uh, error uh, of system that I was involved with called me to the truth and called me to preach the truth to preach the gospel and again this call upon god's or god's call upon paul's life <clears throat> obviously completely transformed and changed radically his life look at uh, um, over to ephesians uh, ephesians chapter four verse one 
I, therefore, the prisoner <coughs> excuse me, of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Now, again, that's not a general call. It's a specific call. And this call is a call that makes a demand upon your life, calls you to live a certain way in response to the divine gracious call, the transforming call of God. Therefore, this call, this efficacious call, will and must affect how you live your life. That's why it's effective, right? And and that effect is seen in conduct, the conduct of your life, the the character of your life. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called into the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when God effectually calls a person, he causes that person to have uh, no more uh, unfruitful fellowship uh, with uh, the deeds of darkness. When God effectually calls a person, he causes that person to have no more fellowship with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Because that effectual call actually now unites that person with fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the call is really a call to be separated from the world. It's a call to be separated out of having fellowship with this present evil world system. Because it's a call to be called out, but then to be joined to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a justifying call. It's a sanctifying call. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or impurity or greed or even be named among you as is uh, proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of, God, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even instead expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which they have uh, done by them in secret. So if you find yourself at home in an ungodly world, if you find yourself at home in the ungodliness and the lust and the filth uh, of this present evil world, if you find the things in the world enjoyable, that the world lifts up on high and you don't find it offensive, then you can be certain of one thing, that no matter what you might profess with your mouth, it's certain that you're not really truly called of God. You've not been effectually called. You may have been, uh, you may have responded superficially to the external call of the gospel. You may have uh, superficially and outwardly come forward at a religious meeting or you've made some kind of outward profession of faith. You maybe even, even have joined a church. But those who are truly called, those who are effectually called, are united with Christ. They're being conformed to the image of Christ. 
as sons of God. They've been adopted into God's family. Therefore, they look like something, and they actually look like Christ. More and more, they look like Christ. More and more, they look like Christ. They do not look like sons of the devil. They actually look like sons of the Most High God. It was the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the... uh, former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia before James Boyce, so this goes back a ways, he says this. He says, If men heed no more than the outward call, they become members of the visible church. If the inward call is heard in our hearts, we become members of the invisible church. The first call unites us merely to a group of professing members, but the inward call unites us to Christ himself and to all who have been born again. The outward call may bring with it certain intellectual knowledge of truth. The inward call brings us uh, the faith of the heart, the hope which anchors us forever to Christ, and love, uh, the love which must ever draw us back to him who first loved us. One, the one can end in formalism, the other in true life. The outward call may curb the tendencies of the old nature and keep a soul in outward mor- uh, morality, the inward call will cure the plague and will bring us to triumph in Christ. Right? The external call, the internal call. So what does the external call do? What does the effectual call do? Well, the effectual call by God actually saves people from their sins. Because it again unites us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be conformed to his image. That we would be adopted into his family his, uh, and look like his preeminence on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter gives the admonition, as he does in 2 Peter 1 and 10. He says, Brethren, all the, be all the more diligent and make certain about the calling, his calling and his choosing of you. So again, those who are truly called, effectually called, they look like something. They look like Christ. Not perfectly, but they're being conformed to the image of Christ. Those who are truly called are united to Christ. Again, they look like him more and more each and every day, conforming more and more conforming to, to his image and not the image of the world. They act like him because they love him. Again, conform to the image of Christ, not to the image of the world, not the image of the devil. Uh, uh, those who profess Christ yet look like the world or practice sin as a habitual pattern of their lives, they give evidence that they're really not called by the Father. <clears throat> now, you can listen to this or you can flip over and turn to yourself. I, I, I don't care. We're, we're going a little bit out of order here, but maybe you ought to just look over and see it for yourself. First John, you know, I'm not, not leading you astray here. I never do that, but just so you know. First John. Chapter 3. Starting in verse 2, it says, Beloved, now <clears throat> we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, the idea of the verb there, practices, is a habitual pattern of life. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Again, not that we don't sin here and there, but it's a habitual practice, a habitual pattern. Then he explains that by verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, 
just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because God's seed, his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Again, he's saying, look, if you profess faith in Christ, yet you practice sin as a habitual pattern of your life, if you don't look any different than you did before you said you came to Jesus, then you've not really been called, is what he's saying. You've not been called by the Father, because the call, the effectual call of God the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ draws the sinner to Christ, draws the sinner to God, and is actually transformed and changed. More and more, each and every moment, more and more in conformity, to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back, uh, go back to uh, uh, the book of First uh, Thessalonians. And, and let me just give you a, a couple more here. First Thessalonians chapter two. <clears throat> First Thessalonians chapter two, verse twelve. It says, "Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His kingdom and glory." Uh, again, a genuine call is going to look like something in someone's life. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. Again, the call does something. Go to Second Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. We should always be, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in truth, verse 14. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God called you and God chose you from the beginning so that you could be sanctified by the Spirit. So that you would obtain a salvation and faith uh, through the gospel that you may gain the glory of Christ. Because election, God's divine election, always leads to calling, which always leads to salvation, which always in the process leads to justification, sanctification, and then finally glorification. How about 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12? Just listen to it. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life for which you are called. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Second Timothy chapter one verse nine. God who has saved us. Now you'll note what it does not say. It does not say who's potentially going to save us. It doesn't say he makes us savable, but it actually says that God saves us. It's in the aorist tense. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus. 
from all eternity. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, it's an efficacious calling. It's an irresistible calling. It's a calling from darkness and death uh, and judgment to fellowship, justification, sanctification, and eventually glorification. It's a call to glory. First Peter 2.21, just listen. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Again, you've been called to live like Christ in this world. First Peter chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 10 after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Second Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now that's a lot, I got it. But I wanted you to see that. The whole thing really is an utterly remarkable display of God's kindness and grace. It's the unyielding summons from God, right, that, that can't be ignored. Again, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the work of God. Now, we can call, and we should, we can call men and women to repentance. We can call people to repent and come to Christ. Uh, we can beg with people and plead with them to turn from their sin and to believe upon Christ, uh, to believe the gospel. But that's the outward call of the gospel. And it's a very different from the inward call by God that actually says, what's the difference? Write it down and look at it later, but don't turn there. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, the thing that makes it effectual, the thing that makes this call external that goes internal, this invitation that is general that becomes specific, that provides the willingness or the ability to respond, again, it's a heavenly calling. It's something that God does. And it's the call of God that actually results in the person's salvation. Again, it's this unyielding summons of God that you will respond to. It is an irresistible call. Theologians sometimes like to refer to this whole issue as irresistible grace. It's the irresistible grace of God that calls you and has an effect to which you'll respond. Because without that effectual call, a sinner is going to remain dead spiritually. So how does God do this? How does God make this whole thing work? How does God take this external call and make it internally effective? Or why do those who are uh, effectually called respond to the gospel in, in light especially of the condition of men, the desperate condition that all men find themselves in naturally before a holy God? Romans 3.9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. 
None who seeks for God, Ephesians 2, 1, you're all dead in your trespasses and sins. You're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish just to him. He can't understand them. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world is blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They might not see the light of the glory of uh, the gospel and the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So how can men respond? Men who are under sin, men who are not seeking for God, again, men who are born spiritually dead, and all dead things can do is move from one level of corruption to another. Dead things are incapable of producing life. Men born in this world are spiritually blind. They're unable to see, right? Unable to respond, unable to understand. Dead, corrupt, without Christ, without hope, perishing. And again, the unregenerate sinner is unwilling and unable to come, unable to believe upon Christ. Therefore, it's God's sovereign power that has to summon the sinner. God's sovereign power that has to bring the sinner to life spiritually. And in a term, men have to be born again. Right? Men have to be born again. One, one birth is not enough. They've got to be born again. Right? Just like I think I alluded to it this morning, John 11. Right? Remember John 11? Jesus calls uh, Lazarus from the tomb. Right? He's physically dead. He calls him from physical death to physical life. It's only God who can give life to those who are dead. It's only God who can give life to those who are dead spiritually. It's only God who can bring into existence that which does not exist. Again, making dead men alive. And the whole topic theologically is called regeneration. Regeneration. It's the spiritual transforming work of God by where the Holy Spirit imparts new life, eternal life to the believer. It's God in his great kindness and mercy where he literally reaches down to the depths of our inability, the depths of our depravity, he meets our need, and he does for us what's humanly impossible. That is, he brings life to that which is dead. It's the recreative power of God. It's the eternal grace and mercy of God on display. It's where uh, the, the, the contradiction between man's inability due, due to his sinful condition and God's call and his kindness is resolved. It's called regeneration. And there's a wonderful picture of it in the Old Testament. A wonderful example of this spiritual renewal or spiritual regeneration. In the context, it's really speaking to the future time, the restoration of the nature of the nation of Israel. But nevertheless, the promises I think are applicable to the individual. I think it's an appropriate, accurate picture of individual regeneration. It's found back in Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. You can turn or you can listen, whatever you like to do. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And again, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God through the prophet uh, Ezekiel promises that he is going to give spiritual life to his people. God promises he will give spiritual life to his people. Look, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, he says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Then I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the effectual call of God causes the individual addressed, who's addressed, to respond. 
because it's God who's doing the calling. It's God himself who's going to bring new spiritual life into the heart, mind, and soul of that one who hears that internal call of, of the gospel. And therefore, because of this new life, that person responds to this internal call, the effectual call of the gospel, and responds to that. And then God in his kindness brings new life. It's God himself who affects the change. It's God himself who affects the change that is needed in us so that we can respond to the gospel of grace. Romans 4, 7 says, Our God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's our God. And here in Ezekiel 36, God promises he's going to wash away sin. He, he says, I'm going to remove evil inclinations from, from men and I'm going to replace them with a new nature. And here, really, in the context, a new heart is, uh, uh, is a reference to being born again, to a new birth or, or regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give them a new heart. Heart here stands really for the internal nature of men, the, uh, what drives a man. A spirit, I think, here is the governing power of the, uh, of the mind that directs the thoughts and actions of the spirit. Stony heart is a self-willed, stubborn heart. A heart of flesh is one that's, repl- that's pliable, it's responsive. God says, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to do work. I'm going to wash away all your sin. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new nature and that new nature is going to be governed by me. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. I mean, it's a profound picture, a profound promise, really, of conversion. It's a picture of spiritual regeneration unto life. It includes forgiveness of sin. It includes, again, regeneration. It includes the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit and the ability to actually respond in obedience to God's commands. And it's all the work of God. I mean, just note the number of times again, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is what God's promised to do. Now, in the New Testament... There are a number of um, passages of Scripture, but a number of terms that are used uh, to kind of give a picture of this great event where the Holy Spirit comes and produces this new life. And, and let me just give you a few of them. You can turn pretty quick, or you can just listen, whatever you like to do. Uh, but turn to Titus chapter 3, verse 5, if you want to look with me. I know I got you turning all over, but that's good. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. The first word of these uh, different terms that's used in the New Testament to kind of Uh, describe this event of uh, regeneration actually is the word regeneration. It's only used twice in the New Testament, and only once in terms of a personal application. Here it is, first one, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Palingenesia is the word palin. The first part means again in Genesis, means birth. By regeneration. By the new birth comes by the reproduction, the renewal, the recreation, the regeneration. Again, it's a product of God himself. It's God who is effecting this change. How's a man saved? He says, not by works. Not on the basis of deeds which he's done in righteousness, but by mercy. 
according to his mercy and, and, and this divine spiritual awakening by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is another group of words that have to do with being born again or born of God or to give birth. Christ, speaking of those whom God has given the power to become children of God, you might remember the beginning of John, John verse one, chapter 1, verse 13. They were born not of blood, bore the will of flesh, nor the will of men, but of God. Right? The children of God have been born, uh, again, not by the will of men, but by, born by God. God is the one. Uh, being born is a passive act. We all understand that, right? Yes? Being born is a passive act? Can I, can I get a show of hands? How many of you chose to be born? Can I get a show of hands like uh, you chose the time, the date, your parents, the place, etc.? So, so can I assume we all agree it's passive? Yeah, it's passive. The very act of being born physically is a passive act. We didn't choose to be born. Likewise, if you understand the scripture properly, none of us chooses to be born again. It's the grace of God. It's a sovereign act of God. So again, regeneration is the sovereign work of God. Look at uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 3. John, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here. Jesus answered and said, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Now, I think most modern evangelicals would say, well, that if a person wants to see the kingdom of God, if he desires to enter into it, and then he, he believes, and that's going to result in his regeneration. But that's incorrect. It's not what the Bible teaches. Note what Jesus says here, what Jesus taught. He says an unregenerate person can't see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And the phrase born again literally means born from above. Unless a person is born from above, they can't see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to go on to explain it's not just seeing the kingdom of God, but it's actually entering into the kingdom. What is he saying here? Unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Listen very carefully because I think it's important. He's saying, look, spiritual birth precedes all actions of spiritual life. Spiritual birth precedes all actions of the spiritual life. If you want to put it another way, and a lot of people have done it like this, he says, he's really saying regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. So what's the relationship between faith and regeneration? Again, what does the Bible say on the issue? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, you can't see the kingdom. God has to work. Now, again, think about the reality. I mean, the physical picture, the physical uh, event of uh, John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. Did Lazarus have the ability to hear the words of Christ and respond to him while he was a dead man? Or did Christ first bring him to life, regenerate him so he could hear the call and respond to the order to come forth out of the tomb? Did Lazarus have faith to believe that he could raise himself from the dead? Or 
Did he have to be brought to life before he could get up out of the tomb and respond to the call of Christ? Now, as a dead man, Lazarus does not have the ability, the desire, nor the power to get up because he's dead. If he is going to come to life, he has to be what? Born again. He has to be regenerated. So again, where is he going to get that power from? John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, he's not talking about physical water. He's not talking about baptism. He's not talking about uh, the breaking of uh, uh, waters. We think in a physical birth, you know, at birth of water break. He's not talking about any of that kind of nonsense because the Jews never talked in that kind of phraseology. They didn't use that terminology. What would Nicodemus have heard? What would Nicodemus have understood in, in uh, Christ's words that you have to, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God? He would have heard exactly what I read out of Ezekiel chapter 36. Because when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to renewal, to spiritual cleansing, especially when it's in conjunction with the word spirit. So Jesus is making a reference to spiritual washing or purification of the soul, again, accomplished by the person of the Holy Spirit through the sovereign act of God at the moment of salvation. That's what's required to enter into or belong to the kingdom. He explains that, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed, verse 7, that I said you must be born again, that you must be born from above. So Nicodemus, although he was a very spiritual individual, he was very religious. Uh, I'll say it that way. He was a very religious individual. He was actually spiritually dead. He was in desperate need of spiritual regeneration, spiritual transformation. But he can't do it on his own. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying, look, just like no man can control the wind, no man can tell the wind blow over here and don't blow over there or blow harder or blow less. The wind does whatever it wants to do. And the wind does what it wants to do, and no man can change it. However, you see the physical effects of the wind. The wind blows through the trees. You see the trees move. You see uh, the wind blow, and the dust is picked up. And Christ is saying the same thing here to the person of the Holy Spirit. No man controls him. No man controls the Holy Spirit. No man can tell the Holy Spirit what to do or where to go or when to work. But just like the wind, there is unmistakable, undeniable evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. For where the Holy Spirit works in the lives of men, there's an unmistakable, undeniable evidence, and the evidence is evidence of life, spiritual life. So again, what's the relationship between faith and regeneration? The relationship is spiritual birth precedes all actions of the spiritual life. Or again, regeneration precedes faith. God has to come and quicken the dead on a spiritual level. And then we're able to believe. Again, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom. Unless he's born from above, he can't see the kingdom. That which is of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. The spirit has to work. Jesus Christ, John 6, verse uh, uh, Chapter 6, verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. Flesh profits nothing. 
So again, in our natural condition, we're all, de- we're all born dead. We're all born of this world dead spiritually, and we don't, we don't have the power. We don't have the ability to raise ourselves from the dead. It's an act of the sovereign grace of God. And we in no way cooperate with it. Just like we don't cooperate with the wind. The wind does what it wants to do. The Holy Spirit does what he wants to do. R.C. Sproul offers this. He says, the reason we do not cooperate with the regenerating grace, the reason we do not cooperate with regenerating grace before it acts upon us and in us is because we cannot. We cannot because we're spiritually dead. We can no more assist the Holy Spirit in the quickening of our souls to spiritual life than Lazarus could help Jesus raise him from the dead. It is probably true that the majority of professing Christians in this world today believe the order of our salvation is this, faith precedes regeneration, for they're constantly exhorted to choose to be born again, but telling a man to choose rebirth is like exhorting a corpse to choose resurrection. The exhortation falls upon deaf ears. It's a great statement. Telling a person to be born again is like telling a corpse to get up. Regeneration precedes faith. And I want to show you, since I got you flipping all over, you won't mind flipping a little bit more. Go to the book of Ephesians. I want to show you when this happens. So if you're not convinced, hopefully the word of God will convince you. If you're not convinced up to this point, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Here's the wind. Paul locates the time, if you'd like, when regeneration occurs. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. Does that say pretty much the same thing in your version? Yeah. When does regeneration occur? When we were dead. The spiritually dead take no initiative in the process. The initiative belongs to God and to God alone, the God, who, God who's merciful, God who's gracious. Jesus says, look, unless a man be born again, unless a man be born from above, he can't see the kingdom. When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Again, it speaks of grace. It speaks of God's total unmerited kindness, his favor and his favor alone. And our spiritual regeneration, our salvation, really stands as the gracious work and the gracious gift of God alone. Look down there at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul Paul is teaching, look, that even the faith that we have, that we're saved by, and that faith comes to us as a gift of God's grace. It's all of God. Again, R.C. Sproul says, our faith is something we exercise by ourselves, in ourselves, but it is not of ourselves. Faith is a gift. It is not an achievement. With the graciousness of the gift of faith as fruit of regeneration, all boasting is excluded forever, save in the boasting of the exceeding riches of God's mercy. All man-centered views of salvation are excluded if we retain the sola, if we retain the sola and sola gratia, grace alone. Therefore, we ought never to grieve the Holy Spirit by taking credit to ourselves that belongs exclusively to him. Those whom the Holy Spirit makes alive most certainly come to life. They see the kingdom, they embrace the kingdom, they enter the kingdom. Because the truth is, we're all debtors to grace. 
And God alone gets the glory for us coming to life spiritually. He, he gets the glory for our spiritual regeneration. Now, I know I've more than done run out of time, and I've got more words that I didn't even get to. But I just give you the headings about rebirth, regenerators, and the ideas of regarding rebirth and regeneration. How about he brought us forth? It's the work of God. James chapter 1, verse 18. He brought us forth. First Peter, he caused us to be born again. Born of God. First John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know uh, that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of him. There, there's a whole other group of words. Uh, creation, new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. There's a group of words in the uh, authorized version that render it, I like this picture, quickened. Again, I just read it out of Ephesians, uh, made, uh, made alive. Ephesians 2, on you have, whom he hath quickened who were dead in trespasses. See the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, he's quickened us. So there are many texts in the New Testament that describe the work of God in regeneration. Again, regeneration just means the planting of the seed of life, the implanting of a new life in the, in the soul. Again, regeneration is a complete work of the sovereign work of God. And re- regeneration has to occur first. Regeneration precedes faith because without it, uh, uh, without regeneration preceding faith, because of the fall, we're all spiritually dead. Dead things can't do anything except, again, move to greater levels of corruption. So regeneration not only comes at the beginning, it's essential. Again, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, unless a man is born from above, he can't see the kingdom. So again, regeneration, what is it? It's the irresistible grace of God that calls us to life in Christ. It's the irresistible grace of God that calls us to life in Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who efficaciously and graciously works to apply the benefits of Christ's work to the elect persons whom Jesus has redeemed. It's the irresistible call, the irresistible grace of God. The Holy Spirit calls us to Christ, and God's grace is so overwhelmingly irresistible, so efficacious, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He gives us life and a new nature. And now with a new nature, he grants us saving faith. And as a result of a new nature, we naturally do what that new nature has now the ability to do is that believe the gospel. Now we can believe the gospel. Now we can repent of our sin. Listen to this in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, about Lydia. Listen to the phraseology. It's a great picture. Acts 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. That's it. The Lord opened her heart. That's the efficacious call. That's the irresistible grace. That's regenerating grace. It's the Lord who opens the heart and the mind of the one who is unwilling before to come. It's the irresistible grace of God, the grace that actually saves a sinner. Because the sinner can't. The sinner can't change his will. It can't change his spiritual condition. The sinner can't take one step towards God. The sinner can't be saved unless God first takes the, makes the first move to save men. And the sinner is saved not because he responded to the gospel, but a sinner is saved because God in his kindness reached down and called him, summoned him to himself. He does so under the preaching of the gospel. Gospel is the means by which God awakens the dead sinner. He's the one who makes them willing to come to mercy. So we proclaim the gospel. But it's the supernatural work of God the Holy Spirit that rescues us. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that rescues us from the wrath 
of God to come, and it's by his grace alone that brings us to Christ and then releases us from our bondage to sin and raises us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the grace of God that really stoops down to us, calls us to himself, reaches out and grabs us, takes us to himself for his own glory. Began in eternity past when God foreknew, when God predestined, and then in time he calls. And I'm telling you, this doctrine, uh, proper understanding of salvation, proper understanding of regenerating grace, the effectual call of God, the efficacious call, the gracious call, really should be a doctrine that should cause us to do what? Praise God. Praise God. Thank our great God who's loved us so much. He's not left us dead. He's not left us in darkness. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to live with him and live with Christ. He wants us, therefore, and gives us the ability to walk in a manner now worthy of our calling. And when we see how good God has been to us, when we see how gracious God has been to us, it should cause us to want to tell other people about Christ. It should cause us to want to declare the gospel everywhere we go because God is still calling men to himself. God is still calling men out of darkness from death to life. And we don't know who that is. I think it was Spurgeon who used to say, people get all hung up over the doctrine of election. He said, if I knew who was elect, you know, if they just had a big E on their forehead, that'd make it helpful. I'd just speak to them. Since nobody has a big E on their forehead, I don't know who they are. How about I just speak to everybody, the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and call all men to repent and let God deal with it. That's a good view. Preach the gospel to everyone. But for you, make sure that you've been called. Again, 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. As long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. Make certain you here tonight have been called. Make certain that you've been chosen by God. And the way that you make certain is you repent of your sin. You turn from your sin. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You follow Christ. You, you place yourself in your faith entirely upon the person of Jesus Christ. And you have one uh, overriding desire above all. You just want to honor him. You just want to honor God. You want to honor Christ. You want to please God and Christ in all that you do and say. You might be in the world, but you're not of the world. You've left the world behind. You've come through that narrow gate on that path of life, and you love your Savior, and you want to please him in every aspect of your life. And you rejoice in God's goodness and his kindness in your life. Again, forever thankful for God's divine, gracious, individual, effective penetrating, arresting, powerful, drawing, irresistible call in your life. And by the way, as I close, it's an inaudible call, this call of God upon your life. What do you mean? You don't hear voices. If you hear voices, we should probably talk later. But you don't hear voices. But one writer says this, and I just love this. He says, the call of God is so loud within the heart and within the soul that grounds every other call from the world. It drowns out every other call of temptation, drowns out every other call that they would try to hold you back and keep you in your sin and not commit your life to Christ. The call of God is so loud that it drowns out all other voices that you alone hear the call of God in in you and you're drawn to the fellowship of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ might be inaudible, but it's pretty loud. And you come by faith to the person of Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for our time in your word. We're so thankful for the word here that just encourages our heart. 
that those whom you foreknew you predestined to become conformed to the image of your son and those whom you predestined you also called and those whom you called you will promise and have promised to justify them and those whom you justified you have promised to glorify we just stand amazed at your grace and your kindness to us through christ thank you for a great day surrounding your word and a great day of fellowship we love you and we just praise you in christ's name amen